Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters Sports Bar will sponsor your next private event. Walters is located right across the street from the ballpark in Navy Yard. Register at waltersdc.com and click the Inquire Now button. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The 0-2, swing a blast to right field deep. Dickerson back, turning all the way around. It's over his head, and it's off the top of the wall and over. A gone home run. On an 0-2 pitch, Lindor hits his 21st and makes it 5-1 New York. Rayleigh coming set. He kicks and he fires. Swing and a foul tip held by Narvaez, strike three. And that'll do it. Three strikeouts for Rayleigh. Pitching around the two-out walk. Brooks Raley will earn his second save of the series and third of the year as the Mets complete a series win, taking three out of four for the Nationals here at City Field. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, July 31st, 2023, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at City Field in New York City. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. The Nationals on Saturday night in game three of their four-game series at the New York Mets scored 11 runs. The Nats in the other three games in the series totaled a mere four runs, including just two runs in a 5-2 loss at the Mets on Sunday afternoon to lose the series three games to one. The Nats fell to 44 and 62. We on Sunday afternoon had a different looking Nats lineup. Lane Thomas did not start. Corey Dickerson was a starting right fielder. Ildemaro Vargas was the starting left fielder. Now, the different looking lineup did not do much. Two runs, just six hits, all of which were singles, just two walks, just one for eight with runners in scoring position. But Mark, you know, this time of year with what's coming up on Tuesday, the MLB trade deadline, 6 p.m. Eastern, It's hard not to wonder about things. And when you see a different looking lineup, thoughts cross your mind about what might be cooking with the Nats regarding that trade deadline. Yeah, I'm sure there were more than a few people when they saw that lineup come out on Sunday morning and saw who was missing from his usual spot. The number two position thought, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on here? Lane himself, when he saw he wasn't in the lineup, went to Davey and said, what's going on? Davey played around with him a little bit before finally telling him, no, I've wanted to give you a day off. I don't think I realized this. I knew he'd been playing a lot. He's only had two days off this year and none since April. So if anybody deserved a day off, it was Lane Thomas. But the timing of it, yeah, that did lead to um, a healthy amount of speculation there for a few minutes. Uh, Absolutely. How could it not? Lane did come off the bench. He struck out in a pinch hitting spot to begin the top of the ninth inning. 
Yeah, you know, the Mets have a lot of problems. Of that, there is no doubt. But this ended up being a rough series for the Nats offensively, with the exception of the one game. Saturday night was really good offensively, but these other three games, all very similar, just in terms of like, not a lot happening with the Nats offensively in those games. No, and you know, you give some credit to the guys they were facing, Senga, Scherzer, Verlander. <laughs> if only the Mets were getting that all year out of those guys and a little bit of offense as well, maybe they wouldn't have been in a position where they're selling at the trade deadline, but they are still all, you know, good and capable of being good pitchers. And the Nats saw the best of them, I think, in those three games. But I mean, boy, there just was not a lot going on. And they had a little moment right away in the first inning. They score a quick run, not just with their bats, but with their legs. And you're thinking, okay, maybe they can get something going here. And instead, it just fell flat the rest of the way. And I mean, this was a pretty blah game from start to finish. And yeah, I mean, for a you're facing an opponent that has publicly acknowledged it's giving up on the season and is starting to trade away guys. You would think, okay, here's a prime opportunity to get healthy off of that. And instead, they lose three out of four and look pretty lifeless in the three losses. Joey Manessis had a rough Sunday, 0 for 4 with three strikeouts. Luis Garcia went 0 for 3 with a strikeout. Corey Dickerson went 0 for 2. Alex Call, 0 for 3 with a strikeout. But you mentioned the Nats making things happen with their legs. And I do want to highlight a guy who, once again, was an offensive bright spot for the Nats, C.J. Abrams. You know, you mentioned Lane Thomas having not gotten many days off this season. Abrams, since being installed as the number one guy, has been the number one leadoff batter in every game. Like, he has not sat since this happened. And I don't know if he's going to sit the rest of the season with the way that he's going. It's interesting with Abrams because it's not like he, in this series, did a lot in the way of hits. Like, it's not like he had a bunch of extra base hits or anything like that. But especially over the last two games, you saw this guy making things happen. That 11-6 win on Saturday night, he only went one for five with a single, but we highlighted this on the previous show. That four-run first was ignited by Abrams with his speed, I thought, generating a throwing error by the Mets third baseman, Mark Vientos, who perhaps rushed his throw due to Abrams' speed. And then this game on Sunday afternoon, Abrams got on base three times, went three for three on stolen bases, two for three with two singles and a hit by pitch. Abrams in an ads one run first, a leadoff single on a grounder up the middle of the infield on an 0-2 pitch. He then advanced two bases on a single by Jamer Candelario to right field. And then Abrams on a double steal, a steal of home for a 1-0 Nats lead. Now the set, he runs again, pitch outside, throw by Narvaez on one hop, goes into center field. Mendick, second baseman, falls on top of Candelario as Abrams comes in to score. And the Nationals lead one to nothing. Abrams in the top of the third, a one-out single to right field and to steal a second base. Abrams in the top of the eighth, a leadoff hit by pitch and a steal of second base. He really is embracing this role of being the number one batter, the leadoff guy, the igniter, and he continues to thrive in that role. 21 for his last 21 on stolen base attempts. And that goes all the way back to early May. So this is long before he was hitting leadoff. But let's give credit here. This isn't just him having great speed and taking advantage of it. He has studied really hard, learned how to read pitchers, knowing going into a game, which are guys you can run off of, which are the guys you can't reading their moves and understanding what moves they make that suggest they're going to the plate versus picking off. So a lot of credit to him for really embracing this and becoming a good base dealer and a great leadoff hitter. I don't think we can undersell the significance of this. I know they need a lot more offensively and that this alone isn't going to do it for them. But boy, he has completely taken off since taking over this role 
we've talked about that's at the plate, on the bases, in the field. He has been a totally different player. And we are starting to see who the real C.J. Abrams can be. I mean, the base stealing stuff looks legit. I don't see any reason why that's going to change, not at this early stage of his career when he's still young and runs so well. There's a lot, a lot of potential there for him to be not just a good leadoff hitter, but a truly dynamic leadoff hitter. Abrams on the season, 24 for 26 on stolen bases. You love a percentage like that. But, you know, as Abrams has thrived in batting in the number one spot, we have seen Lane Thomas really struggle in the number two spot. Now, he did not start on Sunday afternoon, but like I said, came off the bench, had a pinch strikeout, and the numbers continue to be really bad. I mean, he was sat for this game in terms of starting pretty clearly because he's struggling. Lane Thomas is having a really rough month of July. We've talked about this. Lane Thomas, over the four games in this series, one for 14 with an RBI single and seven strikeouts. He, in the month of July, has a batting average of 235 and on base percentage of 275, a slugging percentage of 343. Initially, when Lane got bumped down to the number two spot, he actually had a few good games. And so I remember us joking like, oh, gee, it's not going to ruin Lane. I mean, he's only moving down one spot and he's actually in a more prestigious spot. The number two spot is more meaningful in a lineup than the number one spot. But here's the bottom line now. Lane Thomas is not doing well in the number two spot. Lane Thomas now this season, 20 games as a number two batter, OPS of 557. I mean, the numbers are bad. And his slump more or less does coincide with him being bumped down from number one to number two. I feel ridiculous even asking this, but do you think the move down one spot in the lineup actually has had an impact on Lane in a negative way? He will insist that it has nothing to do with it. And the Nats will say that the quality of at-bats hasn't been good and that he's you know chasing a lot of pitches out of the zone that he wasn't before and I think that's all correct. Now deep somewhere in his psyche is there something going on there? It's entirely possible. These guys are human. And baseball players are nothing if not superstitious. You're going well, you don't want to change anything. <laughs> he was fine with the move when it happened. He did not complain about it. Completely understood why they were doing it. So again, I think officially I think he's not going to use this as any excuse. But all it takes is a couple bad games and it starts to get in your head a little bit. And maybe there is some of that subconsciously going on in there. Now, it's really important for him to get out of this thing. If he were to go into a tailspin that goes the rest of the year, that changes a lot of stuff and it really doesn't speak well as to what he could be for them in the future. We know that there's still a chance in the next 48 hours that they make a move there. I still feel like that's unlikely. I felt like it's unlikely all along. But the reason they would not be trading him is because they do believe he can be a significant player for them moving forward and that what we saw in the first half of the year was legitimate and not a fluke. So he needs to get this thing back together. It's an important test for a guy who has been streaky in his career in the past. So it's not like he hasn't had to try to figure things out before. But yeah, I do think subconsciously there's probably something in there in his mind that said, man, I was going so well and then I got moved one spot in the lineup and for whatever reason, it hasn't been the same since. Well, we know there's a difference between causation and correlation. So there is a correlation between him moving down to number two and struggling, but is there causation? We don't know. And I don't even know if Lane Thomas knows, but it is hard to ignore that. His OPS for this season is down to 805. Abrams is up to 725. Abrams is narrowing the gap. I mean, there was like a Grand Canyon size gap between those two guys in terms of OPS not long ago. And now it essentially is uh, shrinking by the day. You know, I was thinking about the potential trade chips for the Nats and 
I don't know if we've properly highlighted this these last few weeks. So Jamer Candelario continues to do well. But if I would have said to you, like say a month ago, write down the realistic trade chips for the Nats this season, with the exception of Candelario, and I guess maybe Kyle Finnegan, who's pitching pretty well, everyone else has gone into like a tailspin these last few weeks. When you think about Lane Thomas, you think about Hunter Harvey being on the 15-day injured list. Patrick Corbin, to whatever extent he was a trade ship, he's back to struggling. Trevor Williams, who we'll get to momentarily, he's struggling. I guess you could say maybe Dominic Smith has been a little bit better, but I mean, he still overall is not having a good season. The timing of these guys not doing well has been especially bad for the Nats from a standpoint of, you know, trying to cook up trade markets for these guys. And getting hurt as well and add Carl Edwards Jr. to that list. You know, that was a guy that probably after Candelario was the most likely candidate to be traded in the final year of his contract and somebody who would have value to another team as just a a good solid setup, man. And that's probably not going to happen. It could still happen. You're allowed to be traded when you're hurt. Sounds like he's close to going on a rehab assignment. It would be fascinating if the Nats actually had him go pitch for an affiliate on Monday, and maybe that somehow convinces another team out there to say, okay, let's take a flyer on this. I don't think you're getting a lot for him under those circumstances. So yeah, that has been very disappointing. The guys have not played their way into the trade market, really, aside from Candelario. I'll add another name to the list. That's Corey Dickerson, who you sign a guy like that to a one-year, $2 million deal in the winter. The expectation is- Let's get as much as we can out of him for four months, and then let's move him at the deadline. And he has done very little, if anything, to merit being under consideration for a trade. And that's another huge disappointment, kind of like Nelson Cruz last year. The difference here, they paid Nelson Cruz a lot more money than they're paying Corey Dickerson. But you know, if they get to Wednesday and Dickerson, Smith, Corbin, Williams, Edwards, Finnegan, Thomas, you name them, they're all still on the team. In some of those cases, you say, okay, that's fine. That's not a bad thing. But in a lot of those cases, that's actually a bad sign. It was not supposed to work out that way. No. I mean, for the most part, these one-year contracts, they're really like low risk and there's upside. And so you don't really lose much. But when you're a rebuilding team, you would like for more than one to pan out. And you look at the last two seasons, and the only one that's panned out is Jamer Candelario. All these other ones, I mean, going back to last year, you know, you're talking about Nelson Cruz and Cesar Hernandez and, you know, some of these other guys who've been here the last few years. Save for Candelario, these uh, quote unquote prove it contracts, these pillow contracts, as they're called, they haven't worked out. It hasn't like wrecked you financially, but you just would like to have seen more than one work out. You know, you mentioned. Carl Edwards Jr. So the Nats on Sunday morning put Rico Garcia on the 15-day injured list retroactive to Saturday with right biceps tendonitis. The 15-day IL has become rather crowded with Nats relievers these last few weeks. We now on the 15-day IL have Rico Garcia, Hunter Harvey, Thaddeus Ward, Carl Edwards Jr. You go back to opening day, the Nats put Tanner Rainey on the 60-day IL. He's still there. Victor Arano, to whatever extent he could have ever been a factor this season, he's been out the entire year with a shoulder injury. So we've noted the many transactions for the Nats bullpen in recent weeks, but man, a lot of injuries for this Nats bullpen in recent weeks. And guys have not been quick to come back. I mean, Edwards, it feels like, has been out for a long time. Thaddeus Ward has been out for a while. Who knows when Hunter Harvey might be back? And another name to the list, because he's not officially on the Major League IL, but Sean Doolittle was somebody they really hoped would be pitching for them at some point this year, and it has not happened. Remember, he was pitching well, was off the IL, pitching at AAA, and then hurt his knee, and we haven't heard from him since, so that's not a good sign, obviously. Yeah, a lot of the bullpen concerns and issues they've had, I think you can safely say that the injuries have played a big role in that, certainly in the depth of the bullpen. There was a point, remember earlier in the year, we're talking about 
hey, they could come July, they could have like five good quality relievers. Boy, they would love to have three of them right now, right? <laughs> Let alone five. And that's been a disappointing storyline to this season. Although, Al, the bullpen was actually quite good in this game, was it not? Yeah, bullpen did a good job. I mean, in the bullpen in this series, look, it wasn't great, but you it's just not like it was your biggest problem in this series. In this game on Sunday afternoon, three Nats relievers, four scoreless innings. Joe LaSorsa actually looked quite good. Two scoreless innings, two strikeouts. He threw 18 pitches, 15 strikes versus just three balls. Amos Willingham tossed a scoreless bottom of the seventh, despite giving up a two-out single and then issuing a two-out walk. Willingham is back. He was the uh, corresponding roster move to Rico Garcia going on the 15-day IL. The Nats on Sunday morning recalling Willingham from AAA Rochester and Corey Abbott, a scoreless bottom of the eighth, despite giving up two singles and a walk. So the bullpen did put some guys on base, but the run prevention was there. I think it's just funny right now, if you're not following the Nats on a day-to-day basis and you're looking at these box scores and you're looking at the names of these relievers, like imagine someone who isn't locked in on the Nats right now, looks at the box score for Sunday afternoon's game. Joe LaSorsa, Amos Willingham, Corey Abbott. Who, what? Like, you got to really be following this team on a day-to-day basis to know who is in the bullpen at any given moment right now. And I'll even admit, you know, I am locked in on the Nats. I'm with them every single day. I walked into the clubhouse on Sunday morning, saw a locker for Amos Willingham, and never even crossed my mind that he wasn't on the team because it was only four days ago that they sent him down and they were already bringing him back because of an injury. There's been so much turnover. It's hard even for those of us who follow the team literally every single day to keep up with it. There has been way too many changes to that bullpen this summer and for the most part it has not been for good reasons. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Well, the heat, the humidity, the sky-high temperatures, uh, they all are here and all of this is forcing your air conditioning into overdrive leading to ultra-high energy bills. The solution, new windows from the folks at Window Nation. And Window Nation right now is offering a sensational deal to listeners of the Nat Chat podcast. Right now, no money down, no payments, and no interest for two years, plus 50% off all styles of windows. And if you call this week, you get an extra 10% off. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation that you want the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. Again, no money down, no payments, no interest for two years, plus 50% off all styles of windows. And if you call this week, you get an extra 10% off your order. 866-90NATION or windownation.com. You've been thinking about getting new windows, now is the time. 866-90NATION or windownation.com. That's 866-90NATION or windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that you want the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. Hey, Nats Chat. Beyonce is performing at FedEx Field on Saturday, August 5th. And no surprise, it is expensive. We can help, though, by using the special promo code for Nats Chat with the Game Time app. Game time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for events like this one for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater near you. It's the fastest growing ticketing app in the country for a reason. Get images of your seat before you buy so you would know exactly what to expect when you arrive. Snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code NATSCHAT for $20 off. Download Game Time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's a big game in this series two nights ago. Two homers and five RBIs. Swinging a ground ball left side through into left field. A base hit. That will score Nimmo with a tying run. McNeil will stop at second base. And Pete Alonso drives in his 74th run of the year with a perfectly placed ground ball single through the hole. Between Candelario and Abrams, no chance for either to get to it. Well, we mentioned that Trevor Williams was an at starting pitcher for this 5-2 loss at the Mets on Sunday afternoon. He was not good. Williams allowed five runs in four innings. He gave up seven hits, a home run, a triple, a double, and four singles. He issued four walks. He recorded just two strikeouts. He threw a lot of pitches. He over his four innings threw 89 pitches. The bottom of the third was particularly problematic. Williams in that inning allowed three runs on a triple, a double, two singles, a walk, and two RBI sack flies. Now, Davey Martinez did tell you guys after the game that Williams is going on the bereavement list, so it may well be that Trevor Williams in this game was pitching with some things on his mind, so we don't want to hammer him too hard here. But, you know, Williams had been solid for a good chunk of this season. The last few weeks, things have started to fall off. He now, for this season, over 22 starts, has an ERA of 472. And, you know, that reliability that was in effect. And look, when I say reliability, it was like two or three runs in more or less five innings each start, which was like not great, but, you know, for a number four ish type starter, you can live with that. You're not exactly getting that right now with Trevor Williams. No, and it goes back even farther than that. So, first two months of the season, April and May, he ends the month with a 393 ERA. For a number five starter, perfectly fine. I think remember we said many times as we did the shows after he pitched, he has been exactly what they thought they were getting. Since then, not so much. So that was 11 starts to begin the year, 393 RA. He's now made 11 starts since, and it's a 553 ERA since then. There've been far more of these kind of games where he gives up four or five innings. And I think the most troubling part of it is really high pitch counts, not going deep in games. I mean, you knew early on in this one, it was going to be a short outing for him. Now, like you said, things were you know probably on his mind, pitching with a heavy heart. This wasn't a case of him getting the news during the game or after the game. Whatever he and his family are dealing with, he already knew coming into the start. And uh, you know, I think he had a flight out of town to head home. You know, essentially, once he left the game, he packed up and left and, and went straight to the airport, which is why we didn't even see or talk to him after the game. So, you know, you can understand a little bit of extenuating circumstances here in this one, but this was kind of a continuation of what he's been doing really for two months now. 
And that's disappointing. And, you know, we talked the other day about Patrick Corbin. For now, Corbin and Williams are part of this rotation and there aren't enough viable alternatives to that. Maybe a year from now, that's a different story. And maybe they are better off as a pitching staff if they have five better starting options and one or both of Corbin and Williams could be in the bullpen. Remember, he signed for two years. So barring some kind of move or a trade, they are counting on him being a part of the staff, not just the rest of this year, but into next year as well. Yeah. I mean, I think it's difficult in late July to predict storylines for spring training. But just as things stand right now, I think a really interesting 2024 national spring training storyline will be Jackson Rutledge and Jake Irvin. And do those guys make the season opening rotation at a camp? How realistic is that? You know, especially in the case of Rutledge, I mean, Irvin's already at the major league level, but it would be great to see that. Obviously, Cade Cavalli is a wild card with him coming off the Tommy John, but we know the deal, especially with a guy like Williams. He's here to just kind of tread water. It's like in hockey when you're killing a penalty. You're just kind of waiting for these younger pitchers to be ready. You know you know that these veteran guys, the Williamses, the Corbins, they're not taking you anywhere. They're just eating up innings as you play out seasons and you know, you're sort of just biding your time until you're hopefully getting good again. And, and that's you know how it goes in a rebuild. So next up for the Nats is a three-game series against the Milwaukee Brewers at Nationals Park. Game one, Monday night, 7.05, Jake Irvin will be the starter. Game two, Tuesday night, 7.05, Josiah Gray will be the starter. And game three, Wednesday afternoon, 105, Mackenzie Gore will be the starter. I like when the rotation breaks out like this, where the three young guys all start in the same series and you get the one, two, three. So you, you can sort of get amped up for each game from a national starting pitching standpoint. While we're talking starting pitching, just to put a bow on the Max Scherzer conversation from the previous show, I saw this on Sunday. I thought this was pretty funny. So Darren Ravel, who has covered sports business for years, he's now with the Action Network, he put this out. So Joel Sherman, MLB insider for the New York Post, he reported that in order to facilitate the trade, the Mets are paying Scherzer $8 million more than they owe him, $36.6 million. Teams paying Max Scherzer this year, the Mets, $36.6 million, the Nationals, $15 million, and the Rangers, $6.7 million. He is getting paid (laughs) millions of dollars by three different teams this year. You know, there are a lot of ways to quantify greatness, right? You can look at war. You can look at ERA. You can look at wins if you want I think this might be the best way to quantify the greatness of Max Scherzer. He has three different teams paying him millions of dollars for this year. Well, I would say that probably two of those three teams are happy to be doing it. The Rangers, because they're getting him fairly cheap now for the rest of this year and next year. The Nationals, because they're paying the backloaded part of a $215 million contract that obviously worked out exceptionally well for him and them, and just the fact that they're going to be paying him for many years to come. The Mets, maybe not so much because they are truly paying him not to pitch for them anymore, and they are going to end up spending a lot of money to get one and a half seasons out of him. And while he was good in the regular season for them, he made one postseason start. They did not win that. And they obviously didn't win in the postseason with him. And so it'll be fascinating. You know, when it's all said and done, we look back, you know, say on his Hall of Fame induction day and we consider the different teams that he pitched for. What will the thinking be about Max Scherzer and the Mets? What will people remember about that? I'm guessing it's not going to be you know, the highlight of his career, the year and a half that he pitched here, even if it wasn't necessarily his fault, but 
boy, did that not work out in the end for the New York Mets. No. And we know how Max is. I mean, he's not shy about speaking his mind when he does his introductory presser for the Rangers, whenever that is. And he gets asked the inevitable questions about, hey, Max, what went wrong with the Mets? How do you look back upon your time with the Mets? I don't know that you're going to get some, you know, politically correct answer from Max. I would not be stunned at all if Max, you know, just cut loose and and shot from the hip and said exactly how he feels about what happened. Yeah, it would not be uh, wrong for him to do that or out of character for him to do that. But, you know, let's also wrap this all up by pointing out a very important thing here. And I love Max. We all love Max. But when he became a free agent and he's looking around and where are you going to sign? And he ends up going to the Mets on a three-year contract at his age for $43 million a year. The reaction around baseball was, that's insane. Max Scherzer is good, but he's not that good at this stage of his career. And he is clearly taking an offer to go to a lesser team or a team that has less of a chance of winning than some of the more obvious ones like the Dodgers and others because he can't turn down that kind of contract. They made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And while, you know, he lived up to his end of it, I guess, in the end, if he has any complaints about the way things went here, he has to point the finger at himself at least a little bit. He didn't have to accept that deal. He could have gone somewhere that had a little better chance of winning in the short term. But you can understand it's awfully hard to turn down that kind of contract when it's offered to you. It is. You know, it's almost different with the Mets, too, because Steve Cohen's wealth is such that this is like all monopoly money to him. So, you know, the Mets this year are this gigantic disappointment, especially from a payroll standpoint. But I don't know that that impacts anything with them moving forward. Like, this guy doesn't care. Cohen spends money like crazy. And I don't know that what has happened this season is going to dissuade him from spending like this in the future. This is one of the things I wonder about with the Nationals ownership situation. Whenever that gets resolved, whomever ends up buying the team, what kind of wealth are we talking about? Because one of the things that you can kind of lose sight of, but I know like in following what's happened with the football team, you really come to learn, there are different levels of extreme wealth. Like there's a difference between being worth say two or three billion dollars and like nine or 10 or 15 billion dollars. It's not all, oh, they're all rich. Like, yes, they are. But there are different levels of insane wealth. And if you're at that upper, upper tier of wealth, you can do things like Steve Cohen, which is have 300 plus million dollar payrolls and do that year in and year out and not care about the competitive balance tax. It really does change everything for a team. I'm not saying that's a good way to build a team. It isn't. But, you know, when you can just swallow swings and misses in free agency and on big money contracts and just keep moving forward, man, that is an advantage over teams that, you know, if they have one or two bad contracts for big money, that sets the team back for years. You don't have that with the Mets necessarily. It would be like buying a social media site for way more than it's worth and then running it into the ground, right? Oh, that's a different subject. Sorry. Um, yeah, there, there absolutely is. And you make a good point that what the Mets are doing right now is not what the Nats did two years ago. They are not tearing down and starting all over again. They are making a calculated decision to say, this team isn't going to win this year. Let's move what we can, get something in return. And then we're starting over this winter in an attempt to win again. They're going to spend big. I don't doubt that. Steve Cohen is not the kind of owner that's going to go through a three, four, five-year rebuild at all. There's another aspect to this, and, and I think it'll be interesting as well whenever we get to a point that whether it's the same owners or new owners with the Nationals. And I think you have to keep this in mind. And it's such a big motivator in sports and sports ownership. The desire and the pressure to win a title 
I think the learners felt that for a long time because DC had not done it in a long time. They got their title. Are they going to feel that or is a new owner going to feel that again? I know it feels like ancient history, but it's only four years ago they won the World Series. Is there still that kind of motivation to really go all in for it? I think if you're the owner of the New York Mets who haven't won since 1986, yes, there's going to be that motivation. If you own the San Diego Padres who haven't won a World Series ever in their existence, yes, you're going to feel that way. If you own the Washington Commanders who have not won anything in a long time, you are motivated to try to go all in and win a title now. The Nationals are in a different situation and that I think sometimes is an underrated motivator of all this. It's not just how much money you have, but how much motivation you have and pressure you feel within and from your fan base to win something that you have not won in a long time. It would have been interesting because we know now, looking back, 2019 was not the beginning of anything. It was the end. It was the ultimate exclamation mark on this run of 2012 through 2019. Had 19 been more the beginning of something or the continuation of something to where the team didn't just fall off the cliff starting in 2020, but had continued to be good, would the learners have continued to have high payrolls and spent as the ownership had spent prior to 2019 if the Nats had essentially held up their end of the bargain and continued to be good and continue to be contending? Or would ownership have taken its foot off the gas? The taking the foot off the gas, of course, coincides perfectly with the team getting bad. So you can't really complain about the lack of spending the last few years from a standpoint of like not signing free agents because you're not supposed to do that when you're bad anyway. But what if the Nats had remained good beyond 2019? Would ownership have continued to spend as ownership had been spending? I think that's an interesting what if. Yeah, no, I think so too. I think the most likely scenario would have been trying to keep that core group together for as long as they could and make another run at it. But I think there was an understanding that once all those guys got older or became free agents, they didn't have the pipeline. We've talked so much about this to sustain it. And so unless you're going to go all in on free agents, I don't know they would have gone that way. Let's also remember the pandemic was thrown into this mix at the same time, and that was a big part of it. But my hunch is that maybe they could have challenged for another one or two years and gone for it. Maybe they could have made it back again. But I think eventually it would have caught up to them and they would have had to come to the same realization that we need to go young. We need to start over here. And if we don't have the prospects already in our own system, then we're really going to have to start over. And that's ultimately what did happen. Yeah. And of course, another what if is what if the Nats had drafted and developed better during those contending years and didn't have to rebuild after 19, could have replenished the departing stars with new stars. But that's a different conversation. Well, we always enjoy hearing from you. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email us as well, Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to have you as a sponsor of the show. If you'd like to participate, contact Tim Schober, see what we can do for you. Again, that email address is natschatpodcast at gmail.com. We have a website as well, natschatpodcast.com. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. We always enjoy hearing from people and seeing people wearing their Nats Chat Podcast t-shirts everywhere. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A thank you to Tim Newmark for the music of the Nats Chat podcast. Check out his site, timnewmark.com. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat podcast. Here's the 2-2, and it's hit high in the air, out into this right center field, retreating his Frazier. He makes the catch, tagging his Costa. It's Fox Parkney. He scores, and the ball game is over. Jacob Young on the 2-2 pitch.
hits the sacrifice fly. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.